Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Thank you all so much for joining me. I mean, this has been an amazing experience. Thank you all for downloading, subscribing, telling your friends and family. I mean, the guests we've had have been amazing from Deshaun Watson to Hillary Clinton. Today is one of those episodes where you just got to sit back and buckle up. I mean, Derek Hamilton is special. The way his mind works is just second to none. And we get a chance to learn about all of the economic theories we've thought about and talked about, uh, the things I'll talk about on CNN, not just uh, income inequality or equity. Uh, Those words are different. But also, things like reparations. Today's episode is so dope, and I'm so happy to have Derek Hamilton on the show with us today. But I I have to start by saying that this has been another epic week for the country where we saw one of the more significant boycotts in some time where athletes, athletes across major sports, they opted not to play or opted not to practice in recognition of the need for accountability and justice for another young black man. His name was Jacob Blake. Like many of you, I was heartened and inspired by the protests in the streets and by athletes reclaiming their time and seizing their platforms to rise to the moment. As important, we saw players step out with policy agendas for structural change. They weren't just, you know, as we say down south, pissing in windmills. They actually had a pathway for change. I wanted to use this opportunity to suggest my friends in the NBA, WNBA, Major League Baseball, and the NFL I wanted to talk to them about what a comprehensive police accountability agenda should look like and how they, with their platform, could accomplish it because I don't want this moment to pass without a clear roadmap for change. So here's what I think accountability for police should look like led by our professional athletes. First, in every city and county that has a professional team, you should make sure that your city police department, and your county sheriff are eight can't-wait jurisdictions. So tell me what eight can't-wait means. It's eight basic police policies that we can all agree every police department should be doing. You shouldn't be choking people. You shouldn't be shooting at moving cars. You should be reporting on use of force. You should have a duty to intervene when you see an officer being violent. These are the basics. Check 8can'twait.org to see if your city and county where you play are 8can'twait jurisdictions. If it's not, take your case to your mayor, your city council, your county boards, and your county executives. Second, you also need to make sure that the police union contracts in your city and in your county don't block accountability when officers fuck up. I recommend the website www.checkthepolice.org to see how bad the contract is in the city and county where you play ball and fight like hell to make sure your mayors and city council officials don't sign fucked up contracts that keep us from holding their police accountable. Third, eliminate no-knock warrants. This should be easy. Shout out to Breonna Taylor and her family. Eliminate them now, everywhere. Make sure the city and county you live in don't allow what happened to Breonna Taylor to happen where you play ball. You need Breonna's law in every major city in America. You need it right now. 
Next, 20 states have what's called a Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, which undermine our accountability to hold police accountable. Go to www.nixthesix.org to see if your state is one of the states with one of these bills on the books. If you live or play ball in one of these states, lobby your governor and your state legislature to repeal them and have the wealthy owners who own your teams make the calls too. Every state needs to adopt the eight can't wait principles and pass Brianna's law statewide. Finally, put your money where your mouth is and create a political action committee or a PAC that you contribute to that focuses solely on the policing and criminal justice issues and even more importantly focuses on electing district attorneys and mayors and city council people county executives judges sheriffs and state officials where you live and play ball who share your vision for justice i can promise you that your money and your advocacy will send the message you want and drive the change you want to see When owners want taxpayers to pay for their stadiums and get tax breaks, they all magically find their way to mayors and governors and legislatures to get their shit done. Well, my players and my friends and my athletes get this shit done. Now, I'm not asking you or I'm not telling you to go out and do anything I wouldn't do. But I am asking you to push your owners to get into the game and to change the laws and the systems that allow killers to walk free and to keep Jacob Blake paralyzed and handcuffed to the hospital bed. This is how you will change that. You got the ball rolling. Now let's finish the job. If y'all want to make this happen, turn this energy into accountability. DM me to get this done. Now on to our show with my good friend, brother, Derek Hamilton. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I just want to say thank you. Uh, today we have Professor Dr. Derek Hamilton joining us today. My brother, this is an episode we've been looking forward to for a long period of time. Now you're at the Kerwin, did I pronounce that right? Kerwin, Kerwin Institute? Kerwin Institute, uh, literally until Monday, 
And then I head to the new school. <laughs> so, right. Well, you're doing fascinating work and you're about to go to the new school. We'll get into that uh, during this interview. And you're doing amazing work around racial equality. But talk to me about how you got into the work you do around racial inequality, the arc of your career. Well, first, thank you for having me on the show and much respect to you. I, I hear you on uh, TV, not like a regular talking head because you bring substance to your issues as well as some moral clarity. So I, I appreciate that. So thank you. Um, how did I get into it? You know, you, you, you grow up and you see inequality and, you know, you're motivated to address it. You know, I, I'd say I, I've said this on another podcast before. It's melodramatic to describe my experience as a tale of two cities. But it, to some extent, that provides a good metaphor. I grew up in uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, uh, before gentrified Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. Now, now you say it. You're like, it's like, oh, you grew up in a million-dollar home? Because that's what it is now. But, um, you know, we laugh. But, you know, I, I did that. But I also went to elite private school called Brooklyn Friends School, which uh, served two purposes. One was in addition to a good quality curriculum with uh, empathetic teachers to deliver the curriculum, be, having its Quaker roots, it had uh, ethical considerations also with regards to curriculum. And, you know, in my view, we shouldn't separate that. I think that's a privilege and a point that our training should include something around ethics, regardless of what your religion might be or ideology, but there is a, a moral code by which humanity should have SNCC, for example, was uh, their teachings and their foundation were Quaker moral ethic teachings and foundation. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, we, we have a, a common friend who knows your father, uh, Mae Jackson. And, oh, yeah. and, uh, you know, she was a, a moral compass in my life and told me about her experiences, which I think was shared experience with with. Uh, your relatives and a, and a generation that preceded us. So this, listen, you know, for people who, for listeners on this Spotify ringer platform who are hearing you for the first time, when you talk about, quote, the racial wealth gap, what are you referring to? Literally, wealth is the stock of everything that you own versus everything you owe. So from an economic extent, it is your net value in terms of assets minus debt. But Aside from its literal definition, the importance of wealth is the agency, the functionality, what it affords you to do in terms of being able to make financial decisions, being able to withstand a shock like a pandemic, being able to make a decision that I want to open a business. So, so the racial wealth gap might be the cumulative indicator of financial agency that we can summarize with one number as it relates to the difference between what black people have versus white people. And, you know, I'll say something real quick, try to make my answers a little more cogent and, and shorter. But what also is important to understand is that the racial wealth gap is grounded on a historical injustice that has gone throughout the experience of, of America as a, as a nation and even before then and still ongoing today. And the key word is injustice. It's not the result of behaviors or actions on the part of Black people, but rather structures, government facilitation that have in inhibited the ability of Black community to accumulate and pass down assets and capital 
from one generation to the next. So look, that that actually leads into uh, the next question or series of questions. So before we get into how do we close the racial wealth gap, let's talk about the myths around what causes the racial wealth gap. And so I'm going to just go down and this is true or false. And it's a lightning round. Um, You can explain your answer, though, if you if you so choose. More education won't close the racial wealth gap. True or false? True. The home ownership gap is not the primary cause of the racial wealth gap. True or false? You know, that's true. And the nuance there is, is saying that home ownership is the cause of the racial wealth gap. It's like saying wealth is the cause of the wealth gap. Because <laughs> in order to get home ownership, you need wealth. That's the point. <laughs> Supporting black businesses and black banks will not close the racial wealth gap. True or false? That is true also. I mean, those are important things to do, even from a moral, ethical standpoint, but it's not going to close the racial wealth gap. And, and obviously, I can say more. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm breaking the rules of the light. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is going to be an educational episode, so please do. Uh, how about this? If Black people saved more money, that would help close the racial wealth gap. True or false? I, I mean, technically, <laughs> but I think what's important to understand is that the racial wealth gap is not rooted in savings behavior because once you control for income, if anything, black people actually save more than white people. So asking black people to be superhuman uh, in order to close the racial wealth gap, the next question should be at what cost? (laughs) That's a brilliant question. Uh, If we had more financial literacy in the black community, that would help close the racial wealth gap. Yeah, I mean, the, the nuance you're adding of help changes the answer slightly. But, you know, it requires a little bit of articulation. I'll say the racial wealth gap is not rooted in financial literacy because financial literacy is irrelevant without finances to manage in the first place. More black entrepreneurs will close the racial wealth gap. True or false? Ah, More black entrepreneurs. Uh, More black entrepreneurs will not close the racial wealth gap. It could have some beneficial aspects if those entrepreneurs have capital. And this is my favorite. This is my my conservative colleagues on CNN. This one is for you so you can learn something today. But if more black folks got married and lived in traditional family settings, that would help close the wealth gap. True or false? That's also false. I mean, you even find when black households are married, they have typically less wealth than white households when they're single. And we, we should also talk about marriage itself. Thinking of marriage as an input when in fact, it very well is an output. I mean, here, here's one big point I'll okay. make. I, trust me, my, me and my wife, we got a joint account, right? And in that joint account, only one check go in it and she spends all of it. I don't know what really join is about, <laughs> but, but it's an output. And my producer on the show, Kaya, needs to know that when she gets married, marriage is an output. Is that right, Derek? I, I think it's at least as much an output as it is an input, no doubt about it. <laughs> Uh, so a like, quick point of clarification. You're not saying things like home ownership and savings and entrepreneurship. They don't matter. You're not saying that, correct? No, I'm not saying they don't matter. I, I guess the, the, if I were to sum up the answer to every question you ask, uh-huh. capital is the key component. That thinking of capital as the output or thinking about wealth as the output is perhaps the wrong conception. Even something like marriage. You know what would lead to marriage? Resources, <laughs> having resources in the first place. And, and it's not just from a, a, a male-centric focus. Better resource women and men 
promote more healthy and better relationships. To, to describe it as the relationships leading to the resource, that's the misnomer. I mean, I have an article in, entitled Umbrellas Don't Make It Rain. And, you know, it was, it, it, it's meant to be kind of snide in that, you know, it, it was really addressing the first question you asked, does education close the racial wealth gap? So can Black people study hard to close the racial wealth gap? And the statistic often presented that most Americans don't realize to refute that is that when Blacks attain a college degree, their family wealth is typically less than that of white families where the head dropped out of high school. So thinking of education as the causal mechanism for attaining wealth, perhaps we have it all wrong. Perhaps it is having wealth in the first place that affords people the ability to go and get a whole lot of education, especially without debt. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So look, take as long as you want on this, on this question, but if you could wave a magic wand, give me some of the things that your research suggests would be the most impactful policy interventions that would close the racial wealth gap. Just take as much time as you need. I mean, the most direct and parsimonious approach would be reparations. Man, you can't say parsimonious. Don't nobody know what parsimonious <laughs> I probably don't know either. I just say it to try to make myself sound, sound important. Important, as my grandmother would say. Um, the most uh, not only direct, but quickest, uh, you know, expedient. <laughs> that, that would, that's, that's what we're talking about, right? So we're, what is the racial wealth gap? A difference in capital <laughs> amongst uh, two different groups. So the most direct approach would be to uh, fuel Black people with capital itself, to re- redress that historical injustice that has limited them from uh, accumulating capital. The most direct approach would be to give them capital. <laughs> so it's just that simple. I mean, I can give a more nuanced answer to talk about that. Because I don't, I don't want people to just say that that 
that all he's saying is checks in a mailbox. So what's the nuanced answer to that? Yeah. And, you know, even reparations, when we think about the payment, the redress, I think it has to go beyond a check. A check is valuable. It's also symbolic. It is saying here is we recognize the harm that we, we have done. And by the way, truth and reconciliation is also extremely important when you talk about reparations. So it goes well beyond a check. So when you, you need the component where America does the sobering analysis with a full-throated integrity of all the ways in which they have privileged one group and at the expense of another. That's important. It's important from a material and psychological vantage point. And then one other part of why it's important is that it dispels myths and notions about inequality more broadly. In other words, we racialize white poverty. We characterize white people in, I, you know, to use a bad word, it censor me maybe, we niggerize poverty in general. We, we talk about white people as being somehow white trash, that term, as if they're other, if they're deadbeats, if they're welfare queens. So not only does it offer the analysis of uh, telling black people, we recognize that this is not your fault, that we did this to you and we're going to redress it, but it dispels notions going forward around how we should address poverty and inequality as a nation more broadly. This, this pull yourself up by your bootstrap notion gets dispelled. We understand that inequality and poverty is grounded in resources, period. That's the benefit from that. And then in terms of the redress, the ways, the forms in which we could pay reparations, and there's many, and there's several people, you know, we, we let off talking about SNCC. Um, we have ancestors that have grappled with this and thought deeply about this question. So, you know, we should be careful as if I'm originating something that others haven't thought about, but building upon and learning from the past, cash would be useful because it says, here is something in exchange that we're not going to manage. It is yours. Do as it as, as you will. But from a reality standpoint, you've heard the joke that Dave Chappelle has made that you give black people cash, they all go out and buy Cadillacs. If I was as witty and talented in being able to deliver a joke, I would say that the problem isn't that black people buy Cadillacs, is that they don't own stock in Cadillac. So it, it isn't, whether it's Cadillac or anything, if you were to seed a population with cash and they don't own land or the means of production, you might have the unintended consequence of furthering inequality because the, way, the ways in which consumption works in an economic context is that it fuels a multiplicative effect. And those that own the means of production as land will ultimately, in, a, in an iterative sense, acquire more income and net. So uh, to put a button on this answer, we should also include in the form of reparations some transfer of the means of production and or land so that black people will have assets, which, which is the root of the racial wealth gap in the first place when we, when we do reparations. And King talked about that specifically. Dr. King said that, you know, while black folk were struggling in the 40s, 50s and 60s, America was busy doling out land to other groups that were persecuted and oppressed. Um, it, it sounds like you and, and William uh, Darity and a lot of folks have done the homework in identifying what needs to happen. And we've seen things like baby bonds, for example, become a part of 
presidential platforms and legislation. But I think there's a real disconnect between what's pretty straightforward policies that would address the issue and a Democratic Party that talks the talk on systemic racism, but it's tepid in what it's willing to do about it. Why do you think that's the case? <laughs> Ooh, that, <laughs> why is that the court the don't case? Get <laughs> I don't get fired, but tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> And this is a hard question to answer in our contemporary context of Donald Trump because he is a fascist that will hold on to power by any means necessary. He's a narcissistic, and maybe I, you know, I got guess I should be careful saying words like fascist, but uh, by its definition, I, I think he has demonstrated the capacity to trend us towards fascism. Uh, so, uh, with that caveat in mind. Whether it's been, we, we've had growing inequality with Democratic administrations as well, and they have fed into our larger neoliberal paradigm where we've pretty much for at least the last 50 years had an economic American policy grounded in if we only fuel corporations, they will provide a dynamism that will trickle down to all of us through their innovation and lift all boats. You know, that's supply-side economics, this notion that focus on corporations. And part of the ways in which they fueled that narrative was using Blacks as political fodder. So uh, saying that government shouldn't intervene because governments are distortionary, that they come in and tilt market mechanisms in a bad way towards undeserving people. And the undeserving was defined largely as black, again, with caricatures of welfare queens, deadbeat dads, and super predators. And, you know, we, we have a history and see the Democratic Party um, was guilty of this, was compliant of it. You know, not giving the Republicans in any way, letting them off the hook because they're the tiger eating your face party where, where they're, they're more explicit and they offer less nuance. So, you know, blacks have been caught between a rock and a hard place. You know, W.E.B. Du Bois have talked, has talked about this, the, the notion of lesser of two evils. The big question for us is what can we do and how do we, how do we change this paradigm? And I think the ways in which we change this paradigm, and, and please, if, if you're okay with me calling you Bakari, if I'm getting long-winded answers, no, interrupt this, me. Don't be shy. No, I'm, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm learning a lot because right now the next question that comes to my head is we, we have H.R. 40, which is a study of reparations. but why didn't Barack Obama just study reparations? And why haven't we passed a study bill out of the Democratic House yet? Yeah, I mean, frankly, I don't think Barack Obama believes in it. I think Barack Obama at his heart was a person who believed in a market economy and that if we did some tinkering around the edges, that uh, that would address poverty and inequality and, and lead to you know, a, a better overall economy. You know, we could take what took place in the last Great Recession in terms of reactions and, and, and federal policy. A lot of it was aimed at not, you know, in a recession, you're going to need a stimulus. We, we need a stimulus. There are two ways in which you could go. You could provide stimulus in a way that uh, facilitates corporations, or you can provide stimulus that directly facilitates people. Both approaches can get us out of a recession simply stimulating the economy. One approach can lead to greater inequality. The other one can offer growth in a more shared prosperity manner. So 
not only were corporations able to bottom feed and get assets at very low prices because there was a recession, um, but they were also able to get direct stimulus from the government and, and, and grow in that, that fashion. Another way that we could have gone is if we were able to offer people direct resources, uh, then we would have stimulated the economy and also done it in a more egalitarian way. So in a nutshell, if we thought about economic rights in a way that we did in the New Deal, uh, but obviously we do it different in the New Deal in that we wouldn't do it in a racist way. If we thought about an anti-racist, anti-sexist economic rights frame where we fuel people with the resources that were required, that is required for them to have agency in their lives. And I know I'm amorphous right now. You, you're like, get specific. What are you talking about? Uh, things like if, you know, if, if we think that college education is useful for the job market, then we shouldn't saddle people with debt to get it. So we, we, we should offer that as an asset for people so that they can um, do it without the albatross of debt. Take millennials, for example. Millennials came of age during the Great Recession. We told them, wait it out and go to college, get some skills. They did that. They acquired record levels of debt. Um, and then if we add a race dimension, Blacks in particular, acquired record levels of debt because they didn't have the finances to begin with to finance a college education. And then now they come out and they're about to get scarred again as a result of this pandemic. They're saddled with debt. They're, they're facing now an economy where, you know, uh, at least 50 million Americans have applied for unemployment in the last X number of months since March, right? So another approach would be what are the necessary services, goods that people need in order to have true agency in their lives. The, the market rhetoric from neoliberalism is that the markets provide freedom, provide agency, and government gets in the way of that. You know, to use a technical term, that's bullshit. If, if you are hungry, if you, if you don't have any type of resource to begin with, you know, if you are a worker and you don't have alternatives, then you are vulnerable to that employer. You, you don't have agency in your life. You can't, you, you know, if, if you're a waitress being harassed at work and you have a child at home, you can't tell that employer, you know, later for you, I'm not putting up with this harassment because the threat is destitution. Um, and, and, you know, again, I could say a whole lot about this. Having a surplus population of Black Americans at the bottom fuels a system like that. But what could be an alternative? An alternative could be if the government had a federal job guarantee in place. Then uh, that matrix so so there, there are two points that I wanted to make. One is I think that in the future, if Bakari Sellers were to ever run for president of the United States or even United States Congress or anything, I, a federal jobs guarantee is, is essential. Right. I, I think that that's essential to growth in this country. I also think that while we're talking about reparations and, you know, I want you to. It's, it's somewhat of a myth because people just say, oh, black folk just want to check in the mailbox. I think something that's essential for people of color, because I, I have $2,400 a month that I pay in student loans because I did everything this country asked me to do. They told me to go to college and then get a professional degree and go out and get a job. I didn't know that it would be more difficult to get a mortgage and all these other things because all this damn debt I have. Right. But a GI bill 
for people of color. I think that our country owes us that. Does that make sense? A federal jobs guarantee for all? I mean, that sounds, I sound like William Barber, but lifting up all God's children and, and all of those who are in poverty, but also a GI bill for, for black folk who, whose family uh, were, were came to this country in bondage? Yes, absolutely. And, and anytime you sound like uh, Reverend Barber, that's a good thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, solid to you. Uh, and, you know, you run for president, I would support that a whole lot, so especially with that, with that frame. But, you know, I'll sum it up and say an economic bill of rights. What are the essential goods and services? What are the enabling goods and services that people need in order to have true agency, authentic agency? And this ain't socialism. It's not capitalism. It's recognizing what are those essential goods. A job is one. Capital is one. And that's why I talk about baby bonds. Baby bonds is a prospective policy to ensure that everybody as a young adult has capital at a key point in their life. So they really have a choice to either uh, go into business if they want to be an entrepreneur as opposed to a worker, uh, get a debt-free education, uh, or buy a home, be a homeowner as opposed to a renter. You can't do any of those things if you don't have capital. Um, You know, what else would it include? Uh, Public colleges and universities without tuition, Uh, Medicare for all, You know, these are essential goods and services. You know what? I would even support a basic income, not UBI. And we can get into the nuances of which problematic. What's the difference? You know, UBI is everybody in the population gets the same amount of income on a periodical basis. And the people that frame UBI often talk about uh, poor people having to make the decision or choice to give up existing social benefits in order to attain that income. You know, so, you know, that, that is not, that's one of my, that's one of my criticisms of UBI. They, they, you have to, you get rid of the quote unquote safety net in exchange for a check, which seems like a, a devil's bargain almost. That's right. And, and, you know, if we want to demonize a word, that's a neoliberal framing. An I, idea to get a liberal word. Man, I just, I'm having flashbacks to bad days on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> But I, but I truly understand what you're saying. In your research, tell me this. In your research, what's the price tag for reparations and how do economists arrive at that figure? Yeah. So, you know, you got different people that come up with different numbers. Some people can do the calculus of what is the present value of 40 acres in a mule? Uh, another exercise could be thinking about cumulative effects of different policy uh, values that that would have appreciated in, in various ways, appreciated in value, but also provided iterative effects that, you know, take, for example, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's deprivation of Black farmers during the New Deal period from access to capital and then outright leaving them vulnerable to predation from, you know, literally white terrorists. Uh, if we calculate the land loss from that, you would also want to get into what could the income from the value of that land have provided in terms of being able to send a child to get a college degree? So, you know, the calculations can be somewhat nuanced and, and complicated, but basically there are various approaches. But uh, one approach is really trying to go back and determine what would have been the iterative, cumulative, and spillover effects associated with the value of the assets that blacks would have had had not been from terror and government complicit confiscation 
and policies that fueled one group as as opposed to another. So the key thing is that this is not something we can't count. What's the number? Uh, I have not done the number. So, uh, (laughs) you know, the, the number would be an academic exercise. And that's not a useless thing to do, but it really is just that, an academic exercise. The ultimate number would have to come from giving the authority to a commission that's sanctioned by a, a body that can have, you know, the legitimacy to provide the sanction and then put thoughtful people together to come up with the actual number. You know, there's, it, you, you've referenced Sandy Darity. He calculates his number as the racial wealth gap. And, uh, you know, there's, there's nuance and arguments as to why you might want to use that or not want to use that, but, but that's his calculus. So I'm sure you're familiar as we as we get near close. I'm sure you're familiar with both the Biden black agenda. I think they call it lift every voice. I like the agenda. The name is a, is whatever. And the Biden- <laughs> I love that you said that. You know, aren't you tired of, of people trying to appear woke and then and get basically cultural appropriation? Stop it. <laughs> Please yeah. don't do that. Just say black agenda. The name was a, was, a, was a lot. I know the person, he, he doesn't know that I know, but I know the, uh, it's a brother. I know who came up with the name too. So after the campaign, um, you buying drinks for everybody. I'm, I'm, leaking, I'm leaking your name out. No. Uh, and the Biden racial equality plan or equity plan. I actually appreciate that too. If you've read them, have you, you've read them, I, I would assume. What's your grade for those plans from A to F? <laughs> you know, rock in a hard place because uh, the, the clarity is Donald Trump. We, we can't have him be president again. <laughs> exactly. I want it. I want the context of, you know, you, this is not a vacuum. So we're not judging this plan in a vacuum. I'm not saying judge it on a curve, but we're not judging it on a vacuum, which is I tell you, I mean, we have a binary choice. Like I, I people get mad at me when I say that, but we have a binary choice. We we either have Joe Biden or we have Donald Trump. Individuals who vote third party or stay home are voting for Donald Trump. And I just think that the erosion of our civil liberties, the erosions of our democracy and our fundamental tenets of, of this country, how it was built, whether we can, we're not going to, we can have another conversation about how it was built, but we'll be destroyed under four more years of Donald Trump. So I think it's a binary choice we have. Understanding that context, I mean, how would you how would you grade the equity plan and, and the and the black agenda and, and some just some some constructive thoughts to some things that we should advocate for while black folk are nuanced to make sure we're doing everything that we can to get him elected and push him to be better for us? Yeah, so a few thoughts. One is I you know, I'm a co-sign on your point about binary choice, and then add that, you know, it's really problematic and I guess we're not being censored here. Pisses me off that the Democrats leave us vulnerable for somebody to to this binary choice and literally a fascist that uh, presiding over recovery and not having more equity equity has left us vulnerable to a strong man like Donald Trump who can come along and use race as a divisive issue. You know, he started off uh, really going at the Latinx populations because of uh, the presumed threat that whites will no longer be a demographic majority. So he, he was not so subtle in his approach when he said, I'm your last chance. So the point I'm trying to make is that they leave us vulnerable to that. And that's really, really problematic. Um, what is good about the Biden plan is that it recognizes the injustices of the past. So it puts, it puts forth some values that are 
really useful, recognizing that, um, and this is a break from, from traditional democratic parties. Let, let, me, let me not undersell that and make that really clear. The recognition of the harm in and of itself is a break. The typical democratic approach was we address racial disparity with civil rights, and now we just need black people <clears throat> to engage in the market and do the right things and they'll be fine. So that rhetoric seems to be changing in the Democratic platform, and especially with Biden, so credit for that. What I would hope is that the plans become more bolder, that they aren't constrained by the self-inflicted albatross of PAYGO, which only one side of the aisle pays attention to. Uh, and, and, you know, I could say a whole lot about that, too, I'll bookmark it. Um, but here are some more things. Opportunity zones are problematic. Opportunity zones. Uh, any, matter of fact, anytime you hear the word opportunity, you should be scared. Opportunity is a political roost. It's a political roost that, that says if we create the structures right and you do the right thing, you'll be fine. So opportunity zones trying to incentivize corporations to bring capital into certain areas facilitates gentrification, facilitates the ability of corporations to exploit and extrapolate with government subsidy. That's very different than another type of policy where why not fund the communities directly themselves? Why not provide direct grants to entrepreneurs in these areas uh, that are the targeted population that you want to uplift? So that, that's the way I would juxtapose that. Let me say one other policy approach that I'm concerned about, and that is also tax incentives. A, a good thing about the Biden program is that they fully have recognized that we need refundable tax credits, and that's, that's progress and positive. Um, but I think we also need to recognize that with tax credits, often black the black community lacks the initial endowment itself to benefit from the tax credit. So if you offer somebody a tax credit for a home and you don't have the down payment, or if you, you even offer them you know, credit for part of the down payment, you still need a big chunk of assets to begin with. And we let this podcast off talking about if we define the middle class in terms of wealth, there has never been a black middle class because there is not a, a substantially endowed black group when it comes to wealth. Let me ask you this. This is the last question. And I want to talk about executive action in black America um, in the first 100 days of the next administration. Trump said, as he always says, that he's done more for black people than any president, which, of course, is bullshit. But OK, uh, President <laughs> President Biden has tapped a phenomenal black woman vice president and will appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court, which is great. But what I've not heard is is an agenda for the first 100 days and executive action for black America. So if the vice president called you tonight and asked you what would the first or what should the first 100 days of executive action look like for black America, what would you tell him? You know, for starters, reverse everything Trump did. That's, that's <laughs> number one. <laughs> but Trump provides an example to make the point. Go in with guns blazing. You know, if we if we look back to FDR and, you know, we haven't given the nuance of the ways in which FDR generated racial inequality in general, uh, but he did provide the the biggest surge in an American middle class. FDR was guns blazing. But something else we should also keep in mind is that FDR was provoked to go in with guns blazing because there was a progressive movement that made him go in with guns blazing. So lessons today is 
make Joe Biden do it. That, you know, we need movement building. It's not my expertise, but, you know, I've been thinking about it. I know you do a lot more of it than I do, but we need movement building to, to make Biden do it. That, that's the one point. And the other point is that if the Democrats don't go in with guns blazing, they will leave us vulnerable again for somebody like Donald Trump to come back along. That's the key point. They leave us vulnerable when they don't provide action. The populace responds to action. Unfortunately, you're able to mobilize people with some racist action as well. But if the Democrats go in and they really address this pandemic in a way that uh, facilitates people in their lives and changes structures, then they will be better positioned to win the next election and uh, avoid us being vulnerable again to somebody, uh, again, like Donald Trump. And, and let me say one last thing. I'm, I'm sorry I'm long-winded. Kamala Harris as a vice president, while she has been a senator, she has put forth some very progressive ideas and bills. So, you know, I, th- that <laughs> Biden is somewhat <laughs> ironic in his juxtaposition, right? He came in with the first black president and Barack wow. Obama as the VP. Who would, have ever guessed, who would have ever guessed that Joe Biden would be a transformative or transcendent figure in democratic politics, right? And yeah, like LBJ, right? LBJ might have been, I, I keep citing uh, FDR, but LBJ might have done the most towards addressing black-white inequality. Um, and, and that's also, you know, ironic because we know he was a racist. He has, he has <laughs> all the rhetoric in terms that he, that he venom that he spewed. So. Yeah, no. So look, I, I just, I, I want to say thank you. I, I and you, you're right. Um, we, we have to be bold because I was listening to uh, Bill Simmons podcast earlier today with DeRay on it. And DeRay was talking about how Donald Trump has taught us that with the backing of federal government, anything is possible. Like for example, DeRay used the best example. He was like, did you know you could just go around and rip up mailboxes? <laughs> like I, I, didn't, I didn't know that was a thing, like the, the power of federal government. So and we have to be bold. But I just want to say thank you, my brother, for coming on, man. This is an honor to have you. And we're going to bring you back. Certainly. And, and Corey, let me interrupt you real quick. If I can make one last point and then please give the closing. But it ain't just Donald Trump. FDR provided the example. Also, we need not only look at the tyrant of Donald Trump. FDR had guns ablaze. He threatened the Supreme Court that he would expand the bench if they didn't act right. So, you know, we we have historical precedents of what can take place with bold leadership, bold progressive leadership. The only amendment to FDR is that rather than being racist in policy design and implementation, we need to be as, you know, uh, support our friend Ibram Kendi in his new book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. We need to be explicitly anti-racist in our design and implementation of a progressive agenda. Perfect. I mean, that's it. That man. Thank you so much for joining us, man. Good luck on your move. I know you're moving. Good luck um, to anyone who has an opportunity to learn from you. I, I just great. I I, uh, I hope they take that. Um, it's a pleasure, man. Let's get together soon uh, over a beer or something and, and talk shop. But I look forward to seeing you again, my brother. I'm going to hold you to that. You stuck with me as a friend. Everybody heard it. I'm with it. <laughs> you got to hang it. out with me now. <laughs> it's good to see you, man. Thank you, man. Thank you again. Good.